ahead and be seated. Thank you for taking time to pray with one another. And um, that last song that we sang, um, it's an interesting song. You know, sometimes you read things about, <clears throat> if you want to go ahead and pause that music, you can. Um, it's interesting. We, they tell you you shouldn't sing songs like that. In fact, David Crowder, when he first wrote the song, um, I believe it's a Crowder song. Crowder song? Um, it's not an unforeseen kiss. It's a sloppy, wet kiss. And um, some of us have a hard time when we think about God um, thinking sloppy, wet kiss. Um, but you have to understand, the scripture says God sings over us. He dances over us. He delights in us. And uh, they tell us, especially in our culture today, that men are uncomfortable thinking about God in that sense. But David was a warrior. You know, David was a guy that killed a bear, killed a lion, without a gun, without a bow, with a slingshot. He killed a giant cut its head off, slayed thousands, tens of thousands, and yet he was a guy that wasn't afraid to dance before the Lord with all of his might and wasn't afraid to weep before the Lord. And so this idea that guys are uncomfortable thinking about God in this sense is really a cultural lie because um, you can be a man of God like David, a man after God's own heart, and really be okay with that. Now, it doesn't mean you have to. Um, again, we're not talking that, you, you know, love, the love of God is not an emotion thing. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. In fact, um, I've prayed all week long that each of us today would have a tangible expression of God's love. And in fact, I put the, the worship songs together for us to sing. And I'm not a, a fan of ending the worship time with a song like that. Because I think our worship should end lifting up Jesus and exalting Jesus. And it shouldn't be about, oh, how much God loves us. Uh, but I really felt specifically like we did it kind of backwards today. Here I am to worship and how great God is. And then the love of God and the power of his love. And now, oh, how he loves us. And uh, you really need to pay attention today because you could take some of the stuff I say out of context and uh, you could make it fit some argument that you wanted to make, but I think we have a misunderstanding of the love of God. And I think a lot of the time we're just afraid of it. And I'm going to explain that as we go. In fact, as we were worshiping, that line struck me too, but you forgot part of it. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way you love me. And I'm going to explain that to you a little bit later. And the series that we've been in, if you haven't been with us, if you're a guest with us, or maybe you've missed a few weeks, um, we've been talking about thriving in Babylon and looking at the life of Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael um, <clears throat> and how they influenced the nation of Babylon. I mean, here's three young Hebrews that uh, were not very old, maybe in their teenage years, and they're influencing an entire foreign culture. And how did they go about doing that? And we've looked at different things over the last uh, 10 weeks because this is the 11th week. 
And during the four weeks of Advent, we've really started talking about um, knowing how to live as a result of everything else we've talked about. So we talked about knowing how to live with hope in week one of Advent, and we talked about knowing how to live with peace and knowing how to live with joy. And now the fourth theme or the fourth week of our Advent celebration, as we talk about the coming of Jesus to the earth, is knowing how to live with love. Knowing how to live with love. And if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 3. It's going to be on page 978 of the Bible in front of you. So if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's on page 978. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And again, just a reminder, um, make sure you sign up for the the devotions. We're going to be starting again on December 31st. And uh, these are the copies. We'll put them in your mailbox if you want a paper copy. Um, We're going to be reading the Word together. And uh, we're just going to start with just a couple verses every day, and then we'll graduate up to a chapter every day, and uh, sometimes we'll graduate uh, later in the year up to a couple chapters a day, and we're going to really talk about how to get into the Word and how to apply the Word of God to our lives. And I also want to remind you, next week is our local outreach offering, and so we're going to be partnering with James Valley Christian School to be a part of their building program out there. There was some information in your mailboxes a few weeks ago. And uh, that's still in there. And so if you want to uh, be a part of that, that's going to be next week. Um, You can give that today, just write local outreach on it or JVCS on it and uh, mark that on the the memo of your check or on the envelope that you're going to use. Or you can text 84321 and uh, local outreach would be the one. So Ephesians chapter 3, as we've looked at the different things in the life of Daniel, The two books that we've used during this series, called The Daniel Dilemma by Chris Hodges and Thriving in Babylon by Larry Osborne, um, they've talked about how to stand firm and how to love well while in our culture today, how Daniel did it and how we should do it. And we likened it, if you remember, to John chapter 1, where we're supposed to live full of grace and full of truth. That's how Jesus came. We have a tendency as humans to be extremists. All of us tend to do this. So what happens is when we make a mistake in one direction, we tend to overcorrect. Okay? When you're driving a vehicle on icy roads, a lot of the times the, the, the reason you have an accident, they'll, they'll teach you this, they'll train you this, is don't, when you start to slide, don't panic and overcorrect. Because if you overcorrect, you're probably going to roll your vehicle. You have to adjust, and you actually have to go against your natural instinct to correct that vehicle. We, we do the same thing spiritually. Whenever there is an error in some way, so if people start talking about grace, and they overemphasize grace, or they make grace almost an extreme that's incorrect, we overcompensate And we go way over to the other side, and it's all about truth and holiness and righteousness and blah, blah. And Christ came to teach us how to live full of grace and truth at the same time. Full of grace and full of truth. If you look at Daniel, and when Daniel is confronted with Nebuchadnezzar, and God's going to judge Nebuchadnezzar, remember Daniel's reaction? He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He was broken that Nebuchadnezzar, just making sure you're paying attention. He wanted to make sure Nebuchadnezzar would, would repent, and he, he wanted that to be on Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. If you think about Jonah from the... 
When you think about Jonah from the Old Testament, Jonah was, you remember he went to Nineveh to preach? And the people of Nineveh repented. They were the enemies of God. I'm going to go ahead and switch mics because I'm not going to fight that. I can use this and, and then I don't have to fight it. And you don't have to keep looking at me or doing crazy stuff. So back to Jonah. Okay, so Jonah in the Old Testament goes to Nineveh, his enemies, and he preaches. Much like Daniel. Daniel is preaching to his enemies or living among his enemies. And they don't repent and he's broken. Jonah, they repent, and Jonah's upset. And I wonder sometimes if the American church has kind of lost our way. I mean, we don't really make it easy for people to repent anymore. And when they do repent, we're kind of like, well, we'll wait and see. Neither of them had the fullness of God's love the way we know it and the way we experience it. But we do. So Ephesians chapter 3, if you're there, I want to read the whole chapter, but I don't have time for it. So we're going to start in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul writes these words, By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news, the good news about Christ. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. You've got to understand, God knew from the moment he created Adam and Eve what he was going to do. But God wanted to create people that would choose him. He knew that if he created people to choose him, they would reject him. But he would have to come, give himself, so that he would make a way for them to come back into relationship with him. And not by their own effort, but by what he did for them. He knew it all. But the thing is, is it was a mystery because it goes against human nature. See, human nature doesn't overcome stuff by love. If we want people to change, we punish them. We threaten them. We use fear because nobody changes unless there's a fear of punishment. And that's why when God came and took the punishment, it doesn't make sense. And that's why it's called the, the, the wisdom of God is foolish to people. It was foolish to the principalities and the powers. They didn't understand. Paul says that's why they crucified Jesus. They had no idea that crucifying him was actually the thing that was going to defeat them. God overcame them, not by punishing them, not by trapping them, not by throwing them into an abyss, but he overcame them by love. <clears throat> and then it goes on to say, so God's purpose in all of this, was to use the church, to use us, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you. You should feel honored. When I think of all of this, 
I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, and I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. So how do we get kept strong? By letting our roots grow down into God's love. That you would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, not all God's people will, but as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete. Notice, it is impossible for you to be made complete without this. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So how do we, how do we access the fullness of life and power that comes from God? By being rooted in his love, by understanding his love, by experiencing his love. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than what we would ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. So let's look at this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Put down roots into God's love. Put down roots into God's love. Paul says, I literally pray for you to be rooted and established in love. But like I said, we're afraid here of imbalance. Because every single one of us has met these people that all they talk about is the love of God. And then they're like, well, God loves me, so it's okay if I live an immoral lifestyle because he loves me. Now, that's an extreme. But, but our reaction to that is to move too far away from the love of God because we're afraid of the extreme. And we're not supposed to move away from the love of God because the love of God is what sets us totally free. And if we try to move over here to this side and we just try to buy our own effort and strength or willpower or fear of hell or fear of punishment and we use that to stop sinning, we won't. Because it's the love of God that sets us free. In Matthew 22, sorry, I had to look close because my eyes are, you know. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first and greatest commandment. I left it off the screen. Do you remember what it was? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. All the demands of the prophets are based, the law and the prophets, are based on these two commandments. It's all summed up in love. So if we move too far away from love because of the fear that it's going to be misunderstood or misused, we miss it. We miss it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What compels us? The fear of punishment compels us. The fear of hell compels us. Please do not get me wrong. There's a place to talk about hell. 
Pastor John, a few weeks ago, talked about hell, talked about it's a real place, talked about it's a place that we can choose to go because we reject what God has done for us. But hell and the fear of punishment will never motivate anyone to change their lifestyle because it can't. If it was possible, then the old covenant would have worked. When God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, and he said, if you disobey, you're going to die, and people started to die when they disobeyed, they got bitten by snakes, you would think they would change their behavior. They did for a few days, and then they didn't. It takes the love of God to transform our hearts. We misunderstand what love is. Because we think of love as an emotional word. We think of love as, well, I, don't, I, I have to feel something. I mean, when, when your children do something nice, you're like, oh, I love them. Or when someone does something nice, you, you, an emotion happens. But when the emotion is negative, we're like, well, I don't love that person because there's no emotion. The love of God is not an emotion. It's a power it's a force. It's an action. When God demonstrated his love for us, it doesn't mean that he had good feelings towards us. Now, the Bible does talk about his affections for us. His, the Bible does talk about his feelings for us. But his love towards us is not based upon feelings that change or affections that change. His love is constant towards us. In 1 John chapter 4, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. How do we know how much God loves us? Because he was willing to become a human. He was willing to be beaten and to be killed on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. I'll never know what it costs for me to see my sin on that cross. I'll never know because he did it for me. I don't have to pay for it now. When I sin, I don't have to feel bad for a certain amount of time just so I make sure I get it. I am forgiven because of the power of God's love. And I know in some of your minds you're like, oh, no, but that's going to be dangerous because then I won't, I won't feel the full weight of my sin. Guilt and shame and condemnation never changed anybody. But the love of God changes everybody that it touches. As we, oh wait, excuse me. God is love, and all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. How do we live like Jesus here in this world? By letting our love grow more perfect. By living in his love. Not by making a list of the rules that I have to follow, but by learning to live in his love. Because his love will transform my heart. I'm glad Marv's getting it. I hope someone else is too. <laughs> Such Love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. 
If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he first loved us. So Paul says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love. And then he says this, number two, write this down. You need to continue to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. You need to continue to understand how long, wide, high, and deep his love is. Because here's, here's what Paul says. You're never going to reach the end of it. So for every day of your life, you need to understand it more. So for those of you who are sitting there right now like, yeah, I know this. You don't. And you're the exact one I'm talking to. And you don't, because every single day of our lives, we could understand it more and never reach the end. And if this is boring to you, you haven't experienced his love. If you've settled for this idea that all I have to do is, you know, read my Bible and maybe pray a little bit and do, do some things and try to keep this list of rules, you've settled for something that'll never get you there. It's the love of God. Every single day we're to meditate on it, we're to remember it, we're to come back to it, we're to understand what he has done for us. Why does he want us to think about how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is for us? Because he wants you to understand there's no one it cannot reach. He wants you to understand there's absolutely nothing you could ever do that would take you outside of how far his love goes. That's how wide his love is. That's how long his love is. That's how high his love is. That's how deep his love is. And that's so you know that the people that you are offended at or angry at or bitter at or the people in your life that you're like, that person is too far, that person is a hypocrite, that person is, they can't go too far for God's love. And the reason you're having a hard time loving them is because you're having a hard time being loved. And if you don't understand that every single one of us is in a place where we, did, we equally did not deserve God's love. I don't, the, if we went around the room and we voted on who is the nicest person in this room, the person that probably has sinned the least in their life, the person who is the nicest to everybody, and we picked that person. And then we went around the room and we, we picked the, the worst sinner in the entire world ever who have ever lived. And the, the, the most egregious, I mean, maybe it would be a Hitler, maybe it would be a Stalin, maybe it would be your mother, maybe it would be somebody else, I don't know, but it would be the worst sinner ever. Okay, the nicest person and the worst sinner are equally undeserving of God's love. Equally undeserving. And what happens is we hold offense to others or we don't forgive as Christ forgave us because we don't understand that we have been equally undeserving. And we need to experience his love. God's love for us acts first. While we were his enemies, he acted in love for us. While we were sinners. And the scripture then tells us anyone who does not love others doesn't know God because God is 
love. It doesn't mean you've never met him. It doesn't mean you've never experienced his love. It means you have settled in a place where you have stopped understanding his love. You've settled in a place where you've stopped experiencing his love. You've come this far, but you've forgotten that it's every single day I need to understand it. Every single day I need to experience it. Because the Bible says God's love is eternal. The Bible says God's love is constant. The Bible says God's love is enduring. God's love is unchanging. God's love is firm. God's love is a established. God's love is powerful. God's love is transforming. God's love is unfailing. Every single day of our lives. Here's the thing. Every single problem you have, it comes from a lack of understanding and experiencing God's love. Everything. Everything. If you've still got your Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, it's on page 517, if you're using the Pew Bible there. And while you're turning there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we commonly refer to the love chapter, Paul tells us love never gives up, never loses faith, it's always hopeful, it endures through every circumstance, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. In Psalm 136, this is one of my favorite psalms. I wanted you to see the psalm. We're not going to read all of it just for the sake of time. But look at it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. His love, faithful love endures forever. And then he goes through the entire history of Israel. And then he comes to verse 23. I love this one. He remembered us in our weakness. His faithful love endures forever. He saved us from our enemies. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. Not just the good ones. Everything. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. The love of God is the most powerful thing on the planet. Now, can you go to hell even though God's love is faithful? Yeah, because you can choose it. You can choose not to understand the love of God and experience the love of God because Paul doesn't say, I want you to just understand it. He says, number three, write it down. I want you to experience it. Experience it doesn't mean get overwhelmed emotionally and cry and feel it. That's a part of it. If you have never actually just sat somewhere and just thought about the love of God to the point that you just became so overwhelmed by his love, I'd encourage you to start doing it. I mean, turn off the television, put your phone away, and actually just sit with an open Bible and say, God, I need to understand your love. Because if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling in relationships, you need to experience the love of God. You need to be overwhelmed by it. You do. 
Because your problem is not your circumstance. Your problem is not the internet. Your problem is not your, your friend or your neighbor or your coworker or your spouse or your mom or your dad or someone who hurt you. Your problem is you need to be overwhelmed by the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. It is an emotional experience. God gave you emotions. And some of you are like, well, I'm just not an emotional person. Hogwash. I've seen you get angry. You just choose not to let your emotions go there. But maybe what you need to overcome the anger problem and the frustration, I don't know why I always fly off the handle at people. Maybe you need to sit alone and just get overwhelmed by the love of God. Because he knows your anger problem and his love for you is constant, it's eternal, it's powerful. And it'll set you free from anger if you let it. A lack of victory in my life reveals a lack of God's love, whether a lack of understanding it, a lack of experiencing it, and I have to come to a place where I humble myself and say, God, fill my heart, fill my heart with love. Here's an addiction I can't overcome. I need, I, need to be over, I need to experience your love because it's his love that defeats his addiction. It's his love that defeats sin. We sang about it all day. His love defeated my sin. And yet, we don't want to experience it every day so that we can continue to experience that over our love. But now here's the thing. It's not just an emotional experience. It's a practical experience. If it was just an emotional experience, then I would just do what I felt like doing. So if I don't feel like I love you, I could treat you any way I want. I could ignore you. I could be mean to you. I could, you know, talk, talk about you. I could do all those things because, hey, that's how I feel. But it's also a practical experience. And I have to treat you the way God treated me. And the last time I checked, he wasn't up in heaven with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus saying, have you noticed, Tom? Yeah, oh, man, he really flies off the handle a lot. Yeah, I know, he calls himself a believer, but what? because he's my advocate and he's always for me. And Jesus is up there saying, Tom, Father, I paid his price. So those mistakes that he made this week are on me. Holy Spirit, man, I, I want you to fill his heart with love. And the Holy Spirit's like, I'm waiting for him to ask. I'm waiting for him to ask. That's why I don't have time to maintain these regrets. <laughs> when I think about how he loves us, in John chapter 14, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And some of us, when we read that, think I have to obey to prove how much I love him. That's not what it means. If you get to the place where you understand and experience his love, you will automatically obey his commandments. This isn't an excuse to live however you want to live. But it's, if you're going to try to do it in your own strength and by your own power, and you're going to make people live up to your expectations of how they should behave, you don't know the love of God. I mean, people all the time say, I don't believe that person's a Christian. Look at how they live. Look at how you live. 
It's the love of God that transforms us and leads us to overcome sin in our lives. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. God is love. God is love. I mean, Colossians tells us to make allowance for each other's faults. Do you understand? If God tells us to make allowance for each other's faults, he does too. I mean, it doesn't mean that sin isn't costly. It doesn't mean that sin, that we should just be flippant. But he understands our weakness. And he understands that you feeling guilty about it and you wishing it would change and you just, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and trying harder is not going to accomplish it. But if you let him fill your heart with his love, more and more and more and more. When Paul says that Christ would become more and more at home in your hearts, it doesn't mean that you would make him more comfortable and you would just behave yourself so he's comfortable living in your life. It means that you would make his love more and more at home in your hearts. Because, I mean, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who hurt you. <laughs> Good luck this week. I have yet to meet an enemy where the feeling is like, oh, I love them. Well, that person talked bad about me. Oh, I just love them so much. That doesn't happen. And so you know what I have to do? I have to go to the Father and say, Father, that person talked about me that way. And that hurts. And I need your love to fill my heart. Because I, I'm tempted to fight back. I'm tempted to ignore them. I'm tempted to do other things. I need your love. Look at the end of this. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. So if you were acting like the person that you're treating poorly, I mean, I know that you would never act that way. <laughs> Marv gets it. How would you want someone to get through to you? Do that. And the only way we're going to do it is with the love of God. The answer to our sin problem is the love of God. The answer to our relational problems is the love of God. The answer to every one of our problems is the love of God. And you say, then why aren't more of us living in the love of God? <laughs> Great question. Fear. We're afraid. Because we've all experienced someone who's taken it too far and used it as an excuse to live an immoral life. And then fear has caused us not to live in the love of God. Religion going to church, reading our Bible, following a list of rules, making it about a religion and not a relationship with God. Pride. It's so easy for me to, to blame my circumstances. Well, I wouldn't have this porn addiction if it wasn't for the internet. 
Really? That's the problem? Well, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't fly off the handle so much if my boss actually knew how to run a company. Yeah, and I, I by the way, I didn't hear your conversations this week. <laughs> but I've made the excuses. It's always somebody else. And ultimately, I need to be transformed by the power and the love of God. Ultimately, we have divided hearts. Divided hearts. And when Christ comes into our hearts more and more, he takes our divided hearts and he makes them whole. In the book, The Daniel Dilemma, Chris Hodges talks about this. And I'm going to close today with this quote. It's kind of a long quote. But Chris was in Australia preaching and he felt like he was having a heart attack. So he went to the doctor and they did all the tests, gamuts. I really resonate with this. I love this story. And the doctor comes to him and says, I've got good news. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. And then I've got bad news. <laughs> You're crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because stress, caffeine, sleep deprivation, all of these things are causing actual symptoms in your body that are similar to a heart attack. Do you know that actually causes back pain? It actually causes headaches. It actually causes other ailments, stomach problems. Yeah, just stress. Stress. I went to the chiropractor this week for a back problem, and he talked about me, talked to me this week about the number of high school girls he's meeting with that are so overwhelmed by stress, they have pain in their back, and it's, there's nothing wrong with them. It's stress-related. God help us. What have we become? And this is what he writes. Perhaps the greatest symptom of our shifting culture is an ongoing, escalating, life-draining stress. We're busy and always behind, racing to catch up and get ahead, but we're never quite arriving. Our stress distracts us from realizing that our days are slipping through our fingers without enough focus on what should be our true priority, making a difference in our culture. I fear many times we try to change the symptoms of our stress rather than the actual cause, a divided heart. We think if we only manage our time differently or use a different scheduling system or become a better multitasker finally, then we'll experience less stress. But this is rarely the case. From my experience, these attempts give me an initial false illusion that I have things under control, which means I take on more responsibilities than I would have otherwise. For me, trying to address these peripheral areas without seeing the main problem only creates more stress. To get to the heart of the issue, we must look inside ourselves and see what our primary focus is each day. We all know in theory we want to put God first. But practicing it as a lifestyle becomes challenging in a culture that doesn't place value on God or his ways. To become wholehearted in our devotion to God, we have to make sure we're grounded and growing in our relationship with him. God's hope is for us to meet him and know him and love him. This way, our relationship with him becomes the motivation for all that we do. 
He wants to minister to our needs and brokenness so we can discover our place in this world and make a difference. But when we get caught up in our own busyness like I did in Australia, our hearts become divided between what the world tells us is important to be spending our time on, work above all else, achievements, busyness, self-gratification, and on and on, and what is truly important, our relationship with God. If we want to stand strong in a bow-down culture, we must focus singularly on God and our relationship with him, out of which will flow both a healthier daily life and a more rightly aligned heart of service. Here's what I want us to do as we close today. I don't want to just talk about God's love. I want to give you time to meditate on it. I want to give you time to experience it, to receive it, And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to sing a song that's called Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. And Corey writes about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I know that there's all of this hoopla. Some of you in this room may not like this song because you don't like the word reckless. Corey has said, when I wrote the song, when I talked about reckless, I meant that God has no sense of concern for his himself or his own well-being in that sense he's reckless it says reckless may seem to imply that god was careless or that his love is destructive we'd rather say his love was purposeful and intentional or relentless but the point of using the word reckless is to show that by all accounts god's loving us was not what we'd call a wise investment we were a risk even a waste. Yet he loved us anyway. Theologian John Barclay calls this the incongruity of grace. God's love for us is not congruent with our worth or our state. So from conventional wisdom, it's reckless. A reckless use of money is to give an inheritance to someone who squanders it. It's to give a feast to someone who deserves to starve. It's to give a robe and a ring to someone who should be wearing a ball and a chain. But the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of this world. Thanks be to God. I mean, after all, no one learns by being let off the hook. Or so we think. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song. But I want you to begin to think about where you are right now. And if you're in this room and you have never experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. You've never put faith in him, in what he did on the cross. In just a moment when we sing, we're going to have a prayer team here in the front, and I'm going to ask you to be bold and come out of your seat and go to one of the members of that prayer team that's standing at this front row with our lanyards, and we want you to say, I I need to experience the love of God for the first time. If you're here and it's for the first time, we want you to find one of us at this altar in just a moment. For the rest of you, As you sing about it, I pray that you would ask God for understanding, that you would ask God to experience it. Some of you may feel something. Some of you may not feel something. But I'm going to ask you just to be brutally honest with God. 
I'm going to ask you to step out of your seat and maybe come and sing in the front, maybe come and kneel in the front, because there's something about changing positions and changing postures that says, God, I need to do something now in response to this word. I don't want to just hear it. I want to act on it. I want to move. I want to apply it to sin. I want to apply it to addiction. I want to apply it to relationships. I want to live love so that I can make room in my life to love others. But here's the thing. If you don't make room in your life for it, if you don't make room in your life for it, you're not going to understand it and you're not going to experience it. If you try to live life in the busyness and the rush and the undivided heart, you're not going to experience it in all of its fullness. So it's not just going to be today in these next few moments. It's going to be making room all week long. Stand with me if you would. Let's sing this song together, and I'm going to encourage you to move. Find a place of prayer at this altar. Find a place of prayer at your seat. And let's just sing it together.